This is TNA, the new face of professional wrestling. TNA is the best wrestling in the whole world. Oh yeah, you can be king, king, king of these mess. You know? <laughs> See, you're joke. The numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you as sacrifice. Yes, I know, I saw it. You should have won a cup. It's real. It's damn real. That's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in professional wrestling. You've got to be freaking kidding. Welcome, everybody, to You've Got to Be Kidding Me, a TNA history podcast. My name is Garrett Kidney, and this is a very special episode. Today we are celebrating 20 years of TNA wrestling. 20 years ago, today, from the Von Braun Center in Huntsville, Alabama, TNA wrestling was introduced to the world. And for 20 years since, it has gone from strength to other things. That is what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the legacy of TNA. We're here to talk about memories from those 20 years, both personal and broad, about the entire company history. And it is not just me. In fact, it is mostly not me. Today we are joined by guests from across the wrestling media space to share their memories, their thoughts on 20 years of TNA. I would like to thank absolutely everybody who contributed to this episode. I think it's a really good, fun listen and I hope you enjoy it. If you would like to learn more about or support any of the people you hear in this episode, links to their work and their social media will be in the description in the order in which they appear in the episode as well. So it should be pretty easy to keep track of who is who. I won't keep you much longer. I'll talk to you again at the very end. So let's get started celebrating 20 years of TNA wrestling. Hey guys, it's John Pollock here from postwrestling.com. Thank you very much for the invite here to Wax Poetic on 20 years of TNA slash Impact Wrestling. When I was asked to go back and think about some of the, the key moments and memories of Impact what I kept coming back to is what a loaded question it is to go back and look at the legacy of this company and that someone or some people should really write a book on the history of the company and you guys are probably the ones to do it. I will say that I think that for myself, I look back at, at TNA and I always go back to 2005 when I thought it was such a unique product. It was something that you had an amalgamation of several stars that were coming out of the late 90s boom period, but a overall presentation geared around your X division, hot matches, and it overall had a feel of the future of professional wrestling, where things were going and doing so in a compelling way. It was such a pivotal year. This was the same year that they got onto Spike TV, which was huge at the time. And then you go to November when Christian comes over and that introductory promo in the ring, it just had this feel of TNA was the new kid in the class that was moving forward with the product and you just had this certain momentum behind it. And I don't know if they ever fully could capitalize on it and you fast forward several years later and all of the success that NXT had in the black and gold era and so much of it was just literally transplanting some of the very same people and principles that you had seen demonstrated by TNA but not fully cashed in on at TNA. And it always seems to be something where 
If you had taken that vision in 2005 and had that commitment to your upcoming stars that were going to become larger stars through your platform on Spike TV, where things would have hit a ceiling for them. And it just seems that whether it was the talent, the creative, or the distribution on television, all those three areas never came into perfect alignment where you could get a million plus viewers on a weekly basis, but it would be a struggle to get your fan base to buy pay-per-views, to go to live events. And you would see certain aberrations along the way, certain concepts that worked like Angle and Joe and getting in on the ground floor when it came to presenting the knockouts in a meaningful way with your X division that has been the staple of this company from day one in 2002. So I think that that is a huge part of TNA's legacy. The low point to me would have to have been the loss of Spike TV in 2014, where I don't know how many companies could have survived that. And TNA, uh, for better or worse, has always been able to find that lifeboat and been able to get to the next destination. Pardon the pun, which is where they ended up after Spike TV. And losing Spike to me, it was a giant reduction in visibility for the product to their credit, I think they have been able to rebound. They seem to be as unstable as a footing as you're going to see nowadays where they serve multiple functions for Anthem. It's not just selling tickets or sending people to buy pay-per-views. It's also content for your parent company that they now own this product as opposed to licensing it. So I think TNA, after 20 years, at different times, remarkable that they made it 20 years in others I think you look at the strengths of the company, the weaknesses of the company, and there's a lot to dive into on either sides. So I think a show like this is a really intriguing one to get so many different voices and perspectives on what stands out after 20 years, because this is a company that has taken on many different faces and gone through so many chapters and regimes and ideas and talent and television networks it's an unbelievable story and i really hope that people can put it all together and make sense out of a lot of it because it's it's a fascinating company to look back on in the history uh thanks very much guys for the invite to come on i appreciate all the work you guys do and to the back as they say hello hey it's me john blood from new legacy inc as well as the deadlock podcast and Deadlock Pro Wrestling, and Garrett has asked me to talk a little bit about TNA Wrestling, 20th anniversary of TNA, which is insane to me. The more these anniversaries come, the more I feel very, very old. I am only getting older. TNA, to me, is insanely influential. The more I think about it, actually, it probably had a lot of influence on me getting into independent wrestling in general, which independent wrestling became a gigantic part of not only my wrestling entrance, but my life, seeing as I I help run an independent wrestling company now. First TNA show I watched was the very first one. I watched it live um, on a absolutely, completely legal black cable box that definitely just happened to get uh, that channel that was showing TNA. Don't worry, I made up for it. I watched pretty religiously. I'm pretty sure I, I caught every TNA show that I could. I, I vividly remember tuning in on Wednesdays. I remember being at my uncle's house. It may have been like 
New Year's one year. For some reason, I think it might have been the Jarrett and AJ match, and they were going over that for the NWA title. I remember just watching that on Michael's TV. So that's how much I love TNA. I would I would make sure to watch it other places other than just my house because I was super into TNA. And then I remember watching TNA Impact when they had it on Real Player, which I, some people might not even know what Real Player is. Again, I am I feel very old as I talk about this. I remember watching, I think, Delirious, maybe maybe Delirious versus Raven or Delirious versus somebody on Impact on Real Player. And I think Raven was also on the episode. I think it was around the time Raven got the NWA championship. So, yeah, a lot of, uh, <laughs> lot of old memories of, of TNA. Uh, TNA is very important to my wrestling fandom. And I, I guess I didn't really think about it until I was, you know, trying to think about how much TNA influenced my wrestling viewing. But I think maybe without me realizing it, TNA helped me get into independent wrestling because when I would tune into things like CZW, I'd see AJ Styles with the green headband and the the green shorts and the NWA world title. I was like, oh, man, I watch AJ in, in TNA. You know, I, I can see them there, and I, you know, they reference NWA Wildside on CZW commentary. But I was like, oh, it's, you know, that's TNA guy. So I think a lot of that came from that. It's probably how I, you know I, I got more into Ring of Honor from the guys that were showing up in, in in TNA. Even at that time, you know, Paul London would show up once in a while, or you know, Jimmy Rave. Without maybe me noticing, there was a, definitely an influence on 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 me watching independent wrestling more. And then you get further down, Six Sided Ring, which I uh, I was a big action figure guy. So that first TNA action figure line with I think it was Jarrett, Raven, Abyss. Oh, AJ, AJ, of course. I'm pretty sure that was the first four pack. I remember begging my parents to buy me that, and Jarrett had the breakaway guitar. That was sick as hell. Um, so yeah, getting that, and then eventually getting the six sided ring as a figure thing, which I think Jeff Jarrett points to being how TNA got action figure things into stores because they had the unique six-sided ring that nobody else had. That was pretty awesome. And then going from action figures to video games, the one at, well, I was going to say one and only TNA video game, but it was, you know, there was multiple mobile game ones and a DS one, but that Impact game that came out on console, I will stand up for the TNA Impact video game, and I will say it was not the worst game ever. I actually think it was fun. I think the story in that game is really fun. It, it's it's the kind of story I like. Maybe a little too linear, you know, comparing it to, to my favorite wrestling games, but the TNA Impact story was pretty fun. They did what they could with that, and uh, I think the gameplay had so much potential. felt real smooth. You know, there was only a couple of reversals. Like, I feel like you would always reverse something into the flipping neckbreaker or a German suplex or a Death Valley driver. But it all looked, it, it was pretty seamless and looked cool. And I think if we got a second TNA Impact game, it would have really been awesome. Especially if they got, like, King of the Mountain in there, which got cut from the game. Thankfully, we got Ultimate X, which is pretty cool. And we got to play as Mike Denae and Don West. That was pretty cool as well. And I guess just even now, even now, you know, we... Uh, James and Tony, also from Deadlock, will go back and, and watch old TNA episodes. And there's definitely a lot of influence from TNA. A lot of there, there's aspects of TNA, especially presentation wise, that we kind of try to adopt for Deadlock Pro Wrestling. Just because there was a lot of really, really cool stuff they were doing back then. One of the things we always talked about, uh, even before we really got into talking about making DPW and before it really like started, started. We were going to go out of our way to try to get Barry Scott to do a voiceover, even if it was just one for us. And, and it, it upsets me very greatly that we won't get that because Barry Scott was that his voice is just that's the TNA voice to me. Same with like Don West and Mike Tanay, like Don West, Mike Tanay, Jeremy Borash and Barry Scott. Those are the voices of TNA to me. And I wish having any any of those guys do anything with us. But the Barry Scott voiceover was was very cool. I love TNA. 
especially uh, NWA TNA. I was a big NWA TNA guy. Wrestling is, is a lot better for TNA. I know it's easy to, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of stuff TNA did that I laugh a lot at. <laughs> a lot of, uh, there's a lot of all-timer dog shit that came from TNA, but uh, the positives outweigh the negatives for me. Uh, I very much love TNA wrestling, and uh, I'm glad it's still rocking. I'm glad Impact is still a thing, man. I think it's cool. Got a lot of cool friends there, and uh, don't let Rosemary uh, kill you, please. She's trying to kill me. Please, pl please save me. This is a cry for help. This is a cry for help. Please, God. Okay, Garrett, I love you. Hey, great podcast, man. I don't got nothing to plug. Check out New Legacy Inc. on Twitch and YouTube. Check out Deadlock Podcast where you get podcasts, and check out Deadlock Pro Wrestling on YouTube and dpwondemand.com. Love you, Garrett. Hi, listeners of the You've Got to Be Kidding Me podcast. It is Sarah Flannery here, otherwise known as Sarah Flan. And I was delighted to be invited to talk about TNA in the wake of its 20th anniversary. I can't believe that it's been 20 years. They got it. They made it. They made it 20 years when they had their critics and their doubters who would have thought they went out of business. And to be honest, there have been several occasions where we all probably thought they were going to go out of business, but they they made it through and they survived and consider them to be thriving with some of the talent and relationships that they've developed that we never thought that they'd ever get again after some of the disasters a few years ago. But really, no, honestly and truly, TNA slash Impact has been instrumental for me as a wrestling fan. If we go back to 2009, 2008, 2009, I was a very young teenager, 13, 14 years old, and... I discovered TNA through watching it on, on television. It was aired here in Dublin, Ireland, where I'm from. And I was just absolutely captivated because it was the first time I'd ever been really properly exposed to, to wrestling that maybe wasn't WWE. And I couldn't really believe my eyes, some of the talent that I was seeing, especially, I think, for my age and a lot of the people in my generation, the X Division was kind of that crucial thing that got us hooked. And especially for me, it was the Motor City Machine Guns, Alex Shelley, and especially Chris Sabin. You know, you tuned in to see all these big stars, but you, I stayed for the Motor City Machine Guns, who at the time, we were all like, why aren't they getting pushed as a tag team? You know, they kind of went singles, and Alex Shelley had his run after Chris Sabin dominated the exhibition, in my opinion, for a lot of years. But they never got that run as a tag team until a few years later. They really were instrumental for me because of tuning in to see them every week, that really introduced me to so many other wrestling companies because I wanted to get my hands on anything that Chris Aben was in. And I really have TNA to thank for that. And I don't think a lot of people give TNA enough credit for even introducing them to, say, some Japanese wrestling. I mean, their relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling, I mean, it did go sour at the time, maybe because of how they treated some of the talent, but... You know, the first time I ever watched a big Japanese wrestling show was a Wrestle Kingdom, Wrestle Kingdom 3. And that was really instrumental in me getting into New Japan. Finding out who Tanahashi was, you know, Tanahashi showing up on TNA television, like that was huge. And I remember actually watching that at the time being like, wow, this guy is good. And then him having to go back to, to, to Japan like soon after that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of moving on from that getting into TNA, it was at the time it was really getting big in Europe and we were very fortunate that TNA actually came over here to do some live shows uh, starting in 2009 in our national stadium and I was fortunate enough that I got to go and it was unlike any show that I'd ever been to before. I mean, I'd been to WWE house shows here but 
you always knew that they phoned it in on those tours, whereas TNA felt completely different. You know, they had table spots, they had moves on the outside, like they really felt like they were giving it all for the crowd. Now, I do hold a grudge against Jeremy Borash because I was certainly one of the loudest fans and I should have been able to go backstage to meet all my favourite wrestlers, but I digress. And even later that year, they went to the kind of the bigger arena in Dublin at the time, the point now called the Three Arena. And like they, they didn't pack the crowd and there was always the rumours that, you know, the show might get cancelled or be downgraded. But I was so happy to see them in such a big venue, to be honest. I felt like they deserved to fill that venue. It just felt very special because TNA meant so much to me at the time. I don't know if I'd be such a massive wrestling fan the way I am now if it wasn't for TNA. Because I was that kind of misunderstood kid who kind of strayed from the norm, strayed from what my friends are into. And, you know, I kind of found a happy place in TNA. Back in 2009, if you followed me on Twitter, when I started my Twitter account, you know, my username was MMG Sarah. Uh, forgot the C and Motor City Machine Guns. But sure, look, I was only young. You can't really can't really give out to me for that and I didn't figure out how to change it for a very long time and yeah I got to see them several times they came over to Ireland several times uh, to the National Stadium and you know getting to see Chris Sabin finally wrestle um, because he wasn't on the first few tours through injury or he just wasn't on the card because at the time when they first came out in 2009 Alex Shetty was the exhibition champion and just after Genesis when they had that singles match which is absolutely incredible and everyone should always go and watch that at least once a year because it really showcases their talent. You know getting to see even younger talent come through I remember watching the the, the British boot camp and remember Rockstar Spud and you know he was such a massive star I thought and you know TNA were the ones who found him then of course he went on to do you know stuff in WWE years later but really you know his best stuff I think was in TNA so yeah that's kind of my ramblings on how much I love TNA and like I said I hope there's another 20 years of TNA because I think they're very very important and they're now a pillar of wrestling and I don't think the scene would be the same without them the opportunities they've given to to some of the top names in the business over the years it wouldn't be the same especially looking back there were some really good times some really really good times and I think there was at one point it was challenging as being one of the best wrestling promotions in the world with some of the talent that they had and if it wasn't for them so many of us wouldn't have discovered our favorite wrestlers and so many of our favorite wrestlers wouldn't have gone on to do such amazing things in this business so I really think we have them to thank and I just want to sign off Curry Man should have gotten a fired championship title shot that time he won the fired case in the Feaster fired match. And that's all I have to say. Thanks again, guys, for inviting me on. If you want to follow me on Twitter, follow me at Sarah Flan. If you want to listen to me ramble about other wrestling, we have I have on a podcast called Journey Through Gorilla Island um, with three of my best friends. So go check us out on there. We discuss uh, early days PWG. Thanks, everyone. Hey, this is Ian Riccoboni, the voice of Ring of Honor Wrestling, and I'm so happy to check in with TNA History Pod for the 20th anniversary of TNA, of Impact Wrestling. I've been the voice of Ring of Honor now for, geez, almost six years, and it's been a thrill and a pleasure. One of the things that inspired us at Ring of Honor was the link in the history and the lineage to TNA. 
And as I was growing up, as I was in high school, I had seen WCW and ECW disappear. And in 2002, there were two companies that launched almost in parallel. One focused primarily on a video distribution model. That was Ring of Honor, of course. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know when I say that that TNA launched with a weekly pay-per-view model. The things I saw on TNA blew my mind, whether that was AJ Styles, Amazing Red, Christopher Daniels, and then later, Chris Sabin, Delirious, and Sharkboy. And, and I think some of my favorite memories are actually from Explosion, really a pioneer in distribution in the way that they were able to, to send the show out. Because I remember downloading Explosion, streaming Explosion, and seeing the, the hot and heavy rivalry between Sharkboy and Delirious that I really, really enjoyed. The histories of Ring of Honor and Impact Wrestling cannot be told without telling the other. And in times good and bad, both companies really were complementary of one another. And you saw a lot of talents crossover. For me, being the voice of Ring of Honor for almost six years, it was really exciting to see the return of Christopher Daniels to Ring of Honor and then see him pop back up in Impact Wrestling, knowing that he was in the forefront of both organizations and really helped jumpstart both. And to have so many simultaneous links like the Young Bucks, Frankie Kazarian, and like I said, Chris Sabin and the Motor City Machine Guns, just some of my favorites to name a few. I don't want to leave anybody out, so I'll stop the list there. You can really enjoy both products, and over the years you saw where the symmetry and and sort of the complementary nature of both occurred. You know, some drew their allegiances like CM Punk to Ring of Honor, while Samoa Joe really was at the top of his game in both organizations. It was a really fun time to be a wrestling fan watching TNA launch and really kind of jumping on the bandwagon early and, and being one of the original kind of digital forerunners in that space. I remember logging on to the TNA's website and being able to see clips of the Styles Clash and the Code Red moves I had never seen before and then wanting to learn more about these wrestlers. So TNA, 20 years, you know, as Ring of Honor has been sold, um, as we look to the future, I'm so thankful for Impact, for the moments that I've had there as a broadcaster working with Tom Hannafan and and, uh, Drama King Matt. And I'm really excited to see what's in store for Impact. They're a company that, that takes care of their folks. They put out a great product every week. I know I, I watch and keep up with it as school and, and kids permit. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next 20 years went. And it meant a lot to me. It meant the world to me that they opened their doors up to Ring of Honor talent when when things were a little bit unsettled and not yet defined. And for that, I'll always be grateful to Scott Demore. So to TNA and, and the TNA History Pod, I, I wish you well. Here's to 20 years and here's to 20 more. This has been Ian Riccoboni, the voice of Ring of Honor. Happy wrestling, everybody. Hello there, friends. It's me, your old pal, Captain Kevin of the Attitude Era podcast, How To Wrestling Cinema Swirl. It's Raw, Kevin Underground, SmackDown Crawl, all that other stuff that I do. I'm very excited to talk to you today about something I don't really get often an opportunity to speak on, which is my history, my relationship, and my fandom of total non-stop action wrestling, or NWA TNA, as it was known when I first clocked eyes on that company many, many years ago. I mean, I think TNA came around for me, like a lot of folks based in Ireland or the UK, on the wrestling channel back in the kind of mid-2000s. And I do remember something very particular about that time. It was that I think I was the only person in my school, in my social circles, even in my anti-social circles, that was still watching wrestling. You know, I went from the heyday. I remember when I first went to school, it was WrestleMania 17. It felt like 
everyone was interesting. I went from being, you know, the only kid in primary school who knew who mankind was to going to a secondary school where all the older boys all loved wrestling and everyone talked about wrestling. Even teachers knew about wrestling. And then the years went on. Brock Lesnar came in. I was in a rugby school. Everyone was obsessed with him. And then that kind of went away. And then all of a sudden I was left on my own some. I would have no one to talk to about pay-per-views. I would have no one to kind of opine on anything to do with wrestling. And it became quite a lonely time to be a wrestling fan because it was always a very sociable thing for me. And then enter in the Sky Digibox and the wrestling channel. And I'm not going to lie, I had always been very snobbish about you know, types of indie wrestling. I was a WWE kid through and through. I thought WCW was uh, poison when I was 15 years old. And a lot of the stuff on the wrestling channel didn't grab me initially because I felt it was like, it seemed low budget or it felt like it wasn't proper. And then I saw this show where they were giving me three-hour pay-per-views every week. And by hook or by crook, they were trying to give you a pay-per-view quality show there was over-the-top stipulations there were names that i absolutely adored who had disappeared from the wwe and were now in like world title situations i'm talking about seeing rhino and raven battling over you know nwa championship jeff jarrett being there you know people like sting being alluded to hey team 3d those old deadly boys have shown up so you know it for me it was a safe haven these are all these people i thought were no longer involved in the world of wrestling but low-key the best thing that was happening that entire time it was introducing me to this whole other world. I don't even know if that was NWA TNA's idea at the time, but that was my ticket to finally seeing things like Ring of Honor, CMLL, you know, finding out about wrestlers from other worlds, knowing that indie wrestling wasn't just this outlaw mud show rinky-dink thing that I saw on Beyond the Mat. It was actually producing some of the best wrestlers in the world. Honestly, one of the most iconic moments I could ever think of when I was watching wrestling at all during those years was seeing Samoa Joe for the first time hearing Mike Tanay an announcer I'd never really heard of an announcer like that just go on about this guy's credibility and this promotion he came from and he won their pure championship and he had a towel and he was really serious I got to see Sabu I got to see Sandman I got to see Jeff Jarrett on top of the world it was honestly the most boo-boo bananas balls to the wall wrestling show I'd ever seen at that time and I was excited because I got one of these shows every single week. You know, I would see new guys like Abyss and go, oh my God, look, why is WWE signing him? Or I'd see someone like Don Callis and be like, oh my God, how come he's never gotten to be a big talker in anywhere other than ECW up until this point? Or I saw like Eric Watts and I go, wow, that's one of the worst wrestlers I've ever seen in my life. This is amazing. And I've always loved the kind of shit side of wrestling, you know, where things are kind of falling apart and things aren't quite how they seem. I'm not going to lie to you, TNA particularly in those early days, was never the all-singing-all-dancing, absolute five-out-of-five knockout experience. But it had heart. It had character. And I became quite invested, to the point where, as those years went on, I remember, like, very quietly, and I mean quietly, because even if I found someone who happened to be, hey, I'm watching Unforgiven 2004 this weekend, they could give two fucks if NWA TNA was now going to become total non-stop action wrestling on Spike TV. But, like, I remember those moments, and maybe it was the passion of those announcers, you know, Tanay and Don West, and, you know, to an extent, Borash as well. They had that scrappy, you know, media presence. They were on, you know, YouTube before anyone else was. But I felt like I was kind of, not necessarily on the boat with them, but I felt like I was cheering them on. 
I never really thought they could do what they were hoping to do. But I do remember being very, very excited for the ride along the way. It was a strange feeling in the early 2000s to have this sense that WWE is the only ticket in town. And yet, by pure sheer force of will, there was this other company that was stitching together this strange patchwork quilt of the names that WWE simply did not want because they were too fucked up physically, mentally, politically, or they were just part of a scene that WWE had decided right then and there they were never going to be a part of. kind of knew when I was watching AJ Styles with Sports Entertainment Extreme swinging a chainsaw around going after Disco Inferno thinking he may be one of the best wrestlers in the world, but this ain't going to be what's going to get him to the dance anytime soon. But... You know, I was hooked, and I was as hooked by the ups as I was by the lows. Every time they took a step forward, and I would see people online criticizing they were taking two steps back, I always took it very personally. I felt that them going onto Spike TV, it should have been the greatest moment in wrestling since the Attitude Era had ended, and yet I felt like their victories were always mired with struggles, and that made it compelling. You know, so compelling, because as the audience matured alongside... Those young guys used to, I remember seeing like, you know, Christopher Daniels and Chris Saban, you know, Frankie Kazarian, these guys when they were fresh-faced little boys in the early days of TNA, and then seeing them kind of slowly adopt this mantle, it kind of felt like they were making the company theirs. And then comes the heartbreak and the absolute watchability of Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan taking it over. I know I'm playing fast and loose with the timeline here, folks, but... Again, you know, I want wrestling to make me feel stuff. And I felt a whole lot of shit going on in 2010 when those lads took over that company. It felt like, I don't know, when I was a teacher, it felt like kind of the situation where you had a class that you liked. Maybe they weren't the best achieving class in the world, but you understood them. And you didn't want someone else coming in and teaching them how to do things because you knew your way was best. And I just always got that feeling with Bischoff and Hogan, you know, that they were going to do something wrong. And I remember watching it live, that first live <laughs> impact with all of Bubba the Love Sponge's yellow t-shirt wearing sycophants in the first few rows, seeing Val Venus play strip poker with the beautiful people, see the Nasty Boys and Jimmy Hart show up and immediately introduce themselves as being active six-man tag team competitors. And I just thought, well, say what you will, but this is going to be fucking interesting. And it was for eight weeks or however long they went head-to-head interesting is the most generous thing I can say but you know my heart was broken in a very different way to how it was broken by the WWE at the time where I felt it had been a long war of attrition where they slowly kind of like no not John Cena and Randy Orton that's not the attitude era but TNA it kind of felt like even when it was breaking my heart in those days they managed to whether it was the wrestlers themselves or the creative kind of slipping through the cracks. But it always felt like, much like WCW when it was with NWO, it felt like a company that was at war with the worst elements of itself. It felt like within this diamond that had been crudded with layers upon layers of rough, there was still a shiner in there. There was still this amazing wrestling company. If you just gave Samoa Joe his moment, or Kurt Angle a chance just to run with it, or let AJ Styles do his thing, or let the women's division, that was honestly, you know, 
even when WWE was giving you Playboy pillow fights, they were giving you better women's wrestling in TNA. And when WWE decided they were going to clean up the act and give you Divas championships and butterfly belts and no more risque content, they were running fucking circles around them. You know, Gail Kim, Taryn Terrell, Awesome Kong, to name but a few. You know, God, I remember watching Daphne in some of those hardcore wars she had with Taylor Wilde thinking, my God, no one's ever let women do this in America on wrestling television. So, like, I felt I was always there for those moments, those moments of, like, anguish and those moments of triumph. And even during the darkest times, I remember, you know, a period of time after Hogan and Bischoff were gone and it felt like every other week... There was someone new who had a master plan that was going to save TNA, whether it was Billy Corgan or Anthem or whatever small local cable access television that was going to try and you know snap them up and right the course of the ship. I did kind of fall out of contact with TNA in the last few years. And you know I think the thing that made me happiest was that it rose from the ashes of the pandemic. I was one of the companies that was doing things well. And it seems to have found itself a new life as the place where wrestlers want to go if they've got something new they want to try or they've got a skill set they want to improve upon. And I'm very happy to jump in and out of TNA, Impact Wrestling, whatever you want to call it these days, mainly because it is one of the only places that is trying to be that, a proving ground of sorts, as opposed to desperately trying to be number three like so many other companies in its place are. And I do appreciate that the guys running it there, the bones of that old TNA, of Team Canada, Scott Demore, whatever you want to call it, that's still there. It always strikes me anytime I'm doing an episode of How To Wrestling or the Attitude podcast, and for whatever reason, we take a trip down to TNA and watch something a little bit out of the comfort zone, how all my co-hosts are always like, wow, this show is really weird and really different. And I always kind of smile to myself going... I'm not even going to attempt to explain the charm right now because I failed to do it in around 10 minutes here and I feel until I actually sit down and actually review some of it myself, it will always be that mysterious promotion that kind of was the engine that could, did, but absolutely didn't. It had ideas way bigger than the company ever could be and it was kind of pitched by a lot of self-proclaimed geniuses in wrestling to be their vision whether it be Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo, or one of the many other people who had their fingers in the pie of TNA over the years. I think the day I realized that we could finally be nostalgic for TNA was absolutely a golden one indeed. And I'm so happy that you guys are doing such a great job covering this with the love and attention and care that it deserves. Because I think that TNA is something that's legacy is actually strangely more complex than even those of us who were there along for the ride could truly appreciate godspeed tna here's to 20 more because god knows it's proven at this point if there's one thing this company will do it is survive the years in the world of wrestling hi it's me liam of you've got to be kidding me fame and this is my segment on the tna 20th anniversary podcast that we did garrett's making me record an intro because i forgot Enjoy! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Impact is turning 20. And that's pretty nuts for a pro wrestling company. Pro wrestling companies, they come and they go very quickly. I was sitting down here and I was catching up on some Best of the Super Juniors. And I was watching Hiromu Takahashi vs. Ace Austin. 
Which got me thinking about how Ace has been positioned in this tournament. And him being the Impact X Division champion. And as I was kind of, you know, sitting down, watching this tournament, seeing it unfold, and seeing Ace's position in it, it just made me think of how through it all, TNA, Impact, they've managed to keep a certain cachet with the audience. That Impact and that TNA managed to breach through to a level that not many other companies have. I can note, personally, growing up, the only two companies that people of my generation ever talked about to each other were WWE and TNA. And I think a part of that is TNA, at least for a time, was on a premium television network and was on a channel called Fox 8, which was quite big here. That's how I first saw it. People have heard this story before, but I turned on the TV and I saw a segment where Raven returned to TNA, 2003 wrestler of the year, by the way, from You've Got to Be Kidding Me, our show. Raven had returned and threw a fireball in Abyss's face during a match against Dr. Stevie on Impact, and I was taken away. I was blown away by this. I was like, what the hell is this? This is nothing like what I've ever seen before. To this day, like my friends, the only wrestling companies they know who aren't in the wrestling zeitgeist, they know WWE. Now some of them bring up AEW, but they know TNA. TNA was always a company that managed to break through to everyone. It's really interesting. It didn't always have the best reputation, but, you know, you'd have casual conversations with people and it would be, you know, AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Austin Aries, James Storm, Motor City Machine Guns. Like, you would have all these conversations and these guys would keep getting brought up. So it really shows that, you know, for a time there, the impact <laughs> that this company had and how it just managed to breach through. And what made me think about it was I was watching this Ace Austin match and seeing how protected he was and I was like, it feels like, even in Japan, because of the mutual working relationships they've had over the years with New Japan, Wrestle One, the biggest one, of course, Noah, I'm sure there's been others that I just can't remember. They had Dragon Gate guys coming in, they had people coming in from Excursion, they've done everything, you know? And there's still that cachet there in Japan, too. Like, Doki beat Al Linderman, and when he's not calling out for a G-Rex title shot, although he should... He's not calling out for a G-Rex title shot. But as soon as Hiromu... Uh, spoilers for Night 5 of Best of the Super Juniors, I guess. As soon as Hiromu beat Ace Austin, they immediately started setting up something with Hiromu wanting to challenge Ace for that exhibition title. And I think a part of that comes from this is a company that has managed to keep a hold of notability in Japan. It had the Wrestle Kingdom crossover shows. You had the very famous... Jeff Jarrett, Scott Demore joining Bullet Club stuff. Although I think that might have been a little bit after, but still, people knew them from TNA. Um, to go back to it, go to our show, it had Jeff Jarrett attacking Hulk Hogan after a New Japan show in one of, you know, the coolest angles they've done. Unfortunately, it never, nothing ever came of it, but it was a really cool angle. And I was just thinking that as I was watching this stuff, I was like, man, Impact, despite everything that's happened, you know, despite the reputation it's had at times, is a company that persists. It is a company... That stays on course and it, it, it survives and floats. And uh, it's quite remarkable, especially, you know, in this tumultuous business where things go so quickly that they've managed to do this. And I guess that's part of what I'm really enjoying about our show is that I'm getting to finally see that whole process. Only three years. I only got 17 more to go, you know. <laughs> but yeah, and it's just interesting to see like how many times this company was written off over the years. And, you know, deservedly so at times. But it's persevering. 
They've gone to a stage now. See, this is my thing with Impact. I never thought they were going to manage to get their goodwill back. And, you know, you know, they didn't for a lot of people. But for a long time, I was like, this company's never going to get any forward momentum. The People have clearly written it off. You could do whatever. But you know what? Since, like, 2018, 2019, then it dipped a bit, but then it came back. These last few years, Impact really feels like it's got some momentum behind it. It's building up that goodwill again. Problem is that whenever they do anything, that anytime they do anything that strays from that path, they're immediately going to be criticized and it's going to be lol TNA, you know, because they've had that reputation. It's hard not to root for impact. It fulfills a very particular and specialist role in pro wrestling. It's a place where people who aren't quite big enough stars to go straight to the tippity top levels. They can go, they can work on their craft, they can make a living. They can become better performers. They can get over. They can become hotter commodities. It's a place for people to work who may not get picked up once they get released from other places, you know? And that's a very valuable role. It was a role that the kind of intangible they did with a company I kind of consider Impact sister company, which is funny because they really had very little interaction. But it's a, com- it's a role that Ring of Honor also kind of held for a while there. But now it's, it's all on Impact's back, really. You can't but help root for Impact. So... Congratulations, Impact Wrestling, on the anniversary. It's kind of cool, you know? And I'm hoping by the time we get to year 20 in the old podcast, that there'll still be another eh, 15 or so more years to cover so we can perpetually do this dance forever. Do the damn thing. Hey guys, what's up? This is Rich from VoicesOfWrestling.com, the flagship podcast as well as flagship Patreon.com, and I'm delighted, honored, that uh, Garrett and Liam uh, asked me to come on to You've Gotta Be Kidding Me's TNA 20th anniversary episode to give some quick thoughts about what TNA and Impact meant to me uh, and my life and and my fandom, and I was kind of, I was racking my brain trying to figure out the best way to do this, the best way to talk about it. I mean, it's 20 years of a company and you're trying to wrap it up in, you know, just a couple of minutes. And I don't think there's any one singular memory to me about Impact, but you know, my, my fandom and my relationship with that company is 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 very interesting because, you know, obviously over the course of 20 years, my life has changed tremendously in that time as well. The first 10 years of of, of TNA, I was a fan. You know, I was and, and I'll talk about that in a bit, how my fandom kind of ebbed and flowed with, with, with TNA for a multitude of reasons. Uh, and then the last 10 years of, you know, my life and, and watching, you know, TNA and Impact, I've been doing it mostly as an analyst, as somebody who runs a wrestling website, somebody who hosts a wrestling podcast. So it makes, you know, the way that you watch it and the way that you consume a, a wrestling company and think about a wrestling company all that much more different. My fandom with TNA, it began not with the weekly pay-per-views. I just, I, I couldn't, at that time, I couldn't really afford them. I was just thinking, I don't know. I'm looking at some, I, you know, I, I followed the results. I followed some of the other stuff. I knew about it, but I was I was not going to order these weekly pay-per-views or whatever. And, you know, the days of, of pro wrestling piracy weren't, uh, you know, as prevalent at that time, too. Or you were most likely going to get a virus if you downloaded something off of Kazaa or whatever. So I just kind of said, eh, I'm good. I don't really need to watch this company. It looks cool. It looks interesting, but... But I'm good. Then when they go to Fox Sports Net, that kind of changes everything. Because then I'm saying, okay, wait a minute. I get Fox Sports Net. Why the hell wouldn't I watch this show? Why the hell would I not get excited about a pro wrestling company that does look like it has some pretty interesting talent on there? Why, why would I not get excited uh, about watching that? So that sort of opened the doors once I got on Fox Sports Net, where then I was watching every single episode. I was taping every single episode. I was ready to go. And 
what what I'll always remember about that period of my fandom in TNA is how it really showed me where my friends, my you know, my at that time I think I was high school still, yeah, where my high school friends were uh, and where I was in our pro wrestling fandoms because I was like, holy shit, guys, you got to check this stuff out. It's Amazing Red and Christopher Daniels and Sabin and Shelly and AJ Styles and, and and Abyss and this and there's Shark Boy and there's I mean I was so excited about all the guys on this show because they were all new and unique and, and different. Uh, and and so many of them did stuff and Petey Williams and the Canadian Destroyer. So many guys were doing stuff, you know, that I had never seen before. And it was the type of wrestling that I really liked. Uh, you know, I, I obviously watched during the Attitude Era, as many of my friends did, but I kind of gravitated more towards the technical wrestlers, WCW Cruiserweight Division, your Dean Malenko's, your Chris Benoit's, those sort of types. So then when, when TNA started, and it's on Fox Sports Net, and they're, you know, predominantly featuring a lot of those great in-ring wrestlers, I remember telling my friends, like, oh my god, you guys gotta watch this, you gotta check this out, and they were all just like, eh, I don't know, I don't know who cares about wrestling anymore, and I'm like, no, 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 this is great, this is great, this is great, and that is the moment when I really kind of decided, oh, they're kind of done with this. They're done being wrestling fans. They were WWF and WCW fans. WCW goes away. They kind of hang on to WWF a little bit after that, but then they're pretty much done and they're pretty much out of it. And I wasn't. And that was a major turning point for me in my life where I just decided, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm just like a hardcore wrestling fan that is going to consume anything and wants to consume anything uh, and wants to see stuff that he's been never been able to see before and new wrestlers and a new company and all that sort of stuff. So that'll always remember it being a very divergent moment for me and my, my friends who I grew up watching wrestling with. And they kind of all gave it up. And I was just like, nope, I'm all in and I'm going to be in forever. And uh, well, 20 years later, here I still am. Watching, talking about wrestling, and trying to get my friends to watch it, but uh, I gave up. I gave up on that a long time ago. I just made new friends, friends that actually watch wrestling, so that's uh, the better way to go about it. But this would also become a common theme for TNA over the course of my history in the company, is that very quickly something happened. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I just decided... I'm not into this anymore. It's this company annoyed me or whatever, and and it's it it wasn't this singular moment, but the 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 Monty Brown push and the the Monty Brown story was really one of the first moments where that company disappointed the hell out of me because if if you'd watched you know TNA through 2004 and 2005, he was the man. I mean, he felt like he was ready to be a star, a breakout star, a guy that nobody had seen before, uh, a guy that hadn't appeared anywhere else, and 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 it was like a homegrown TNA star. And it felt like he was ready to go. He was going to beat Jeff Jarrett, and then he didn't. And then he turned heel, and then it was bad, and then it sucked, and then he left to go to WWF. And it was just like WWE at that time. And it was just like, man, what a god damn that they just completely dropped the ball on that. So, you know, it wasn't that reason on its own, but that was one of the reasons that I was just kind of like, all right, well, I guess, I guess I'm kind of done with this company for now, you know. And what also happened too, and this was a constant in, in, in TNA's history, is they would showcase a lot of really, really cool talents. Like I mentioned, the guys before, Amazing Red, AJ Styles, uh, you know, those sort of guys that I was like, holy crap, these guys are awesome. And what happened is when I decided that I was kind of bored of what TNA was doing and I was annoyed about some of the booking and some of that stuff, I then discovered the world of, wait a minute, here's Ring of Honor. I can watch AJ Styles and Amazing Red and CM Punk and Samoa Joe and all these are great wrestlers, they're all over here. So then I just started watching Ring of Honor instead of watching TNA because Ring of Honor was giving me what I wanted without all the bullshit th that sometimes came in, 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 you know, with TNA. But, you know, my fandom then ebbed and flowed a lot over the next few years is because, you know, when they got into Spike TV, that felt like a whole new thing. It was like, okay, hold on a minute. This is a company that's, they're doing some things here. They got some resources. Things are going to happen here. And then they, when, when Christian Cage jumped, and that is a pivotal moment in my fandom because that was like, oh boy, we got something here. 
This is a company that is now making moves. They're taking guys from WWE. Guys from WWE are saying, this company sucks. I'm not fulfilled here. I'm going to go to TNA. I'm going to go elsewhere. And that felt like a huge moment. And then I was all in. And I was all in for a couple of years uh, after that. But then 2007 was a real kind of down year for TNA. And it, it felt like a lot of the guys that had momentum started to kind of falter a little bit, kind of started to fall. And it felt like... Ah, what's going on? Like, come on, let, let's go. Let's get to the next thing. We're, we're, we're good on Jarrett. We're good on, you know, yeah, Kurt Angle's great to have, but, like, let's let's push some of the younger guys. Hey, the Dudleys are here, but I don't know that I really want to push the Dudleys. You know, I want, I want to get some new blood here. I want to get some of these great talents that I'm seeing on, on television all the time. I want them to become the most prominent parts of this company, and it just never happened. So I started to kind of waver a little bit then when Christian leaves and all those guys are starting to kind of, you know, see the exits. I'm starting to think, ah, oh, it's not quite there anymore for me. And at that same time, they they were featuring a lot of Japanese talent at that time. And again, it, it TNA became a gateway for me to say, "Hey, what is this New Japan thing? Hey, what's this Dragon Gate thing? What's you know, what's this? What's that?" Uh, and then I was able to kind of you know transition away again from TNA to another world of wrestling. So I, I I always give tons of credit for for TNA exposing me to a lot of wrestlers and a lot of companies that I didn't know about. The problem was that I always kind of found myself ended up gravitating towards those companies. Uh, as opposed to just sticking with TNA. And then, you know, the final time that I really bought in as a fan was when Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff came in. And I was an idiot at the time, I guess. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> now we're talking. Now this is some juice. And then very quickly I realized, oh, no, that's Bubba the Love Sponge. And no, that's the Nasty Boys and the band or whatever the hell. And I was like, this is not what I want at all. And and it was from that point on that I just never had that connection to TNA anymore. And as such, you know, a couple years after that, by 2011... I'm now running Voices of Wrestling.com, so my fandom is just completely different. It's not really fandom anymore. It's now become a bit more of a quote-unquote job, you know, to analyze uh, and talk about the company. And that also coincided with just a tumultuous time in, in TNA's history where they became kind of a laughingstock. And it sucks because I think the first 10 years of that company, there's a, so much good and interesting things about it. There's things that frustrated me as a fan. There's things that frustrated all of us as fans. But... There was something to sink your teeth into with most of TNA before that point. After 2011, things just fall off the deep end. And, and, and then, you know, they become a laughing stock and then they're running out of money and they're doing this and they're doing that. And yet, and, you know, Billy Corrigan and then Anthem buzz them out and they're on pop and they're on pursuit and they're, they're bouncing all over the place. The Dixie Carter emails, it, they just became a laughing stock. And post Anthem, you know, they've been very stable, but at the same time, it's been kind of a boring run in TNA, you know? And, and I find myself obviously still watching a lot of the shows and still analyzing a lot of what they do. Uh, but they're boring, but I guess in a good way. <laughs> I guess boring is okay for TNA, given where they were really from the start. I mean, and, and that's the thing that I, I, I more than anything wanted to kind of wrap up here with is that TNA from the beginning should never have lasted. It shouldn't have lasted six months. The fact that they got to 20 years is insane. It, sh it, it was a, a terrible business model ran by terrible people that didn't know what they were doing. They put horrible people in charge, and I'm not talking about the Jarrett's. I mean, they weren't great, but I'm talking about more of the other ends of the business that were just awful businessmen, literal fraud <laughs> taking place within the company, and it should not have lasted. It should not have lasted past... Bob Carter should have looked at it and said, no, I'm not giving you money to keep this stupid thing alive. No, get, no, get out of here. Go away. And it's done, and then it's over, and it never is thought of or spoken of ever again. But obviously that doesn't happen. Dixie Carter's in charge, and then they, they go on for years and years and years uh, under that leadership, and then obviously under different leaderships, and uh, it made it 20 years. And that is something that a whole lot of wrestling companies can't say. It, it, it's outlived what anybody thought. Anybody in any... I mean, I'm pretty sure on the flagship podcast, we predicted 
that like Rockstar Spud was going to do a beer bash when Impact went to the UK. And I forget even what year that was because it was so long ago. And they survived. And they're still going. Are they thriving? Nah, maybe they're not thriving, but they're surviving, goddammit. And that matters, and that means something. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of really good memories about TNA. I just wish I had more. And, and I'll always say this, is that if and when the time comes that TNA does go away or that Impact finally does go away, there's going to be a lot of hidden gems. People are going to discover a lot of great stuff that happened in TNA and Impact Wrestling history. And, and I think maybe it's 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 a good time. Maybe this 20th anniversary is a good time to kind of let go of all the negativity let go of all the things that kind of disappointed you in the past. Me, the Monty Brown thing. Me, you know, Christian Cage leaving. Me, you know, these little dumb things that 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 I kind of got hung up on, you know, all these years ago. Kind of let those go and just kind of start focusing on the good times and the good memories and the good matches and the good wrestlers and the good things that TNA did because there's so much good stuff out there. And the days of kind of LOL TNA, we're kind of past that. We, we, we've had, you know, five years of, of, of relative st- uh, stability from the company, so maybe it's time that we, we really do embrace the great TNA and Impact. And, well, there's there's still a shit ton of bad, and that's why you have episodes <laughs> and shows like You've Gotta Be Kidding Me uh, that do a great job of highlighting both the great matches and the insane, insane, terrible, sometimes laughable things that they did as well. So uh, congratulations to Impact for uh, 20 years, and uh, it's been a ride. It's been a roller coaster ride for all of us, but, uh, yeah, they, they again, this company should not have lasted six months, uh, and they got to 20 years. So congratulations to TNA and Impact. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to listen to this episode, see what other people's memories are, and, and just want to say, since they're on the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network, time for a cheap plug that Garrett and Liam do just an incredible job with You've Got to Be Kidding Me. When they pitched me on this show uh, and said, hey, what do you think about this show? Immediately, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Of course. Yes, do it. Do it. It's going to be great. Uh, and it's better than I even advertised. I, I think Garrett and Liam do an incredible job together, and uh, I'm excited to see where the podcast goes over the next uh, many, many years as TNA gets even more wild and even more crazy as, as they're covering it. So I uh, want to thank Garrett and Liam, of course, for You've Got to Be Kidding Me. And uh, yeah, I'm out of here. So thanks, guys. Appreciate you listening for a little bit. Take care. Bye. Hey, everyone. Barry Murphy here. Garrett reached out to me to record something for this uh, anniversary episode for uh, TNA slash impact celebrating 20 years in existence and i think it's a really fitting time uh, for that milestone to roll around because obviously with things like you've got to be kidding me but also various other little corners of uh, the sort of wrestling fandom it feels like right now is a period where people are genuinely reassessing impacts uh, legacy and contributions to wrestling for the positive um, obviously they've had a whole hell of a lot of ups and downs a lot of very just criticism but I think when people kind of dive back into their back catalog they see a lot of stuff that is perhaps a little bit underrated perhaps is a little bit under celebrated you know a lot of influences on the wrestling landscape that are totally apparent when you watch them with that 2022 eyes both you know stylistically but also in terms of just you know talent and uh, wrestlers who'd go on to be hugely influential uh, uh, in WB and now obviously AEW but even things like, you know, the podcast's uh, namesake, uh, you know, the, the commentary team of, of Don West and Mike Tanay. I'm really glad that a lot of people are looking back on, on that team and going, you know what, they were really great. They were legitimately really great, and they are perhaps now uh, quite underrated in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but there's so much uh, there's so much stuff like that in TNA's history. There's a lot of uh, huge names in wrestling who've had big runs and bigger companies. I think talent discovery is like 
arguably one of the most important traits of any booker, promoter, or organization. And when you look at the likes of, you know, your AJ Styles, your Samoa Joes, uh, your Motor City Machine Guns, your, your you know, the list goes on of people who went on to, to, to make waves. I think Impact deserves a lot of credit for that. And as I said, you know, it, it hasn't been perfect. <laughs> I, I, I don't think this, the 20-year the history of Impact is simply a, a, that of a, a, a great company that just wasn't appreciated in their time. I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of misfires, a lot of controversies, a lot of very justified criticism, but that's, that's wrestling as a whole, isn't it? It's never just straightforward, you're great or you're not great. There's always a mix of highs and lows and, and, and peaks and celebrations and milestones and controversies. And, and for better or worse, I think I think over the course of 20 years, I think Impact's contribution to wrestling has been overall worthwhile, especially as you now look at them in, in 2022 as... Uh, obviously perhaps less uh, notorious and and, uh, maybe lower on the wrestling totem pole that they were, say, during the Spike days. But now they occupy this really cool sort of middle space above and beyond the indie space, but maybe slightly below the AEWs and WWEs of the world. But I think that's a really important space to be in, that sort of mid-sized promotion that has some stars but still has some kind of... uh, uh, envelope pushing ideas that allows them to maybe go in some different directions and do some different stuff other than you know what the big guys are doing so uh yeah i'm, I'm really grateful that, that their company exists for all the ups and downs i think i think it's a they're you know they've uh, got some really rich history and i think they they have a very important role in the industry uh today uh yeah so uh, thanks again to uh, uh to garrett for asking me to do this uh, happy birthday, TNA slash Impact, and uh, yeah, again, this is uh, Barry signing off. If you don't know myself, uh, you can you can catch me and Garrett later this year debating the game of the year on the Link to the Cast podcast. Uh, and if you want to uh, hear more from myself, you can follow me on Twitter at the Barry Lad. Thanks, guys. Twenty years of TNA Impact Wrestling. I cannot believe it. I truly can't believe it's been twenty years that that company's been around. TNA holds a special place in my heart because it was one of the first wrestling companies, other than like WCW, which was already not around anymore, that I realized existed outside of WWE. So it expanded my view. I remember tuning in for the first time, seeing Shark Boy in the six-sided ring, and just having my mind blown and being in immediately. It's like a superhero fan and stuff. I saw Shark Boy. I was like, oh, I'm in. Shark, who loves Stone Cold. So, I mean, Sting. I used to have a poster on my wall of Sting putting uh, Jeff Jarrett in the Scorpion Deathlock. I remember just staring at that. Jeff Hardy realizing that he was still wrestling outside of the WWE, watching his matches with Abyss. Abyss, just in general, one of the awesome monsters in the history of wrestling. And his whole career pretty much took place in TNA. So shout out TNA for 20 years of amazing memories and hopefully 20 more years. Hello, my name is Trevor Dane. Most people probably know me from two things. They know me from either Through the Years, that's T-H-R-O-H for the spelling of Through, because it is a podcast about the history of classic Ring of Honor. Or you just might know me as the guy who says a lot of dumb things on Twitter, at Trevor Dame. Those are the two main things, but before I did either of those things, the thing that people probably knew me for was related to TNA, and it's kind of embarrassing. It's, uh, you see, there used to be a thread, well... Actually, a series of threads on the uh, Figure 4 Wrestling Observer message board about a couple different TNA message boards and uh, pretty wild message boards. So these started well before I ever saw these threads, but I kind of 
came in and latched onto these threads, which were basically people would read these TNA message boards. They would find kind of like the wildest posts. They would like quote them in this thread and then everyone would talk about them and joke about them. And uh, I ended up getting sucked into these threads way long after they happened to the point where I ended up posting in them every day where I would basically almost do like a column every day where I would take kind of the wildest posts from those forums, mostly one of them, and I would uh, try and correct certain errors and do it in a funny way, and all sorts of crazy things happened. We uh, People in the thread ended up figuring out that one of the people that ran one of those sites faked their death, all sorts of weird things happened. It's a, it's a long story. It, it, it's, it's crazy. But... That was the thing I, uh, I I used to be known for, and I wasted too much of my life on it. So when I got asked to um, contribute to this fine podcast and this fine episode, I guess the temptation would be to talk about that stuff. But honestly, I know those fans are not indicative of uh, all TNA fans, just like how you can go to any fandom of any company, any site, any, any place ever, and you can find corners of the internet with really militant fans. And so TNA was no better or worse, I would say, in that respect. But I do think I learned some things about TNA from studying those fans for way too long and writing about TNA for way too long. So when uh, Garrett asked me to talk about this, I thought, well, how can I sum up, how can I count, what, like, what's my original take on TNA, when probably so many people are going to be contributing things, how, you know, my weird experience informed something, and I do think I've come up with a take. So, one complaint you would see often on these TNA message boards, the couple we went to, again, there was probably some great ones out there, but the ones we focused on, they were very militant. In fact, one of them broke off from the first one, because even though the first one was pretty relentlessly positive, some people that used to write for that site thought it was not positive enough, and they formed another site. And that's actually, um, I'll just say if that name of that site, it was TNA Mecca. It actually yeah, ended up having a little bit of influence on TNA in the sense of they did interviews with top TNA stars, TNA employee Bob Ryder would uh, frequently uh, lurk on that site and sometimes post and even do Q&As just randomly on the site. And the most common refrain you would see from that site and sites like that would be this very angry, paranoid, it's us against the world feeling. There was this thought that everybody from non-TNA fans to the wrestling media to wrestlers that weren't in TNA, they all, quote-unquote, wanted TNA to fail. And a lot of times these people that were saying this couldn't even tell you why these people wanted TNA to fail, but there was this thing that they were not being honest, that really deep down they would like TNA, but they, they wanted TNA to fail. So they were saying things they didn't mean, and, and there was just this feeling that, that, that you know, they, they desperately did not want this kind to succeed. And see, I actually think the opposite is true. I think people desperately wanted TNA to succeed, and that is why, even though I think a lot of the criticism TNA got was fair, if it ever got some that was extra harsh or extra passionate, maybe sometimes harsher than it deserved or more passionate than you would expect, more passionate than other companies would receive, I think it's because so many people wanted that company to succeed in the, in the worst way. And I think why is because TNA was basically the Rorschach test, in my opinion, 
of professional wrestling companies. Everybody looked at TNA and they wanted it to be what they wanted a wrestling company to be. And I guess you could argue that's how people look at everything, but I think it was different for TNA because you have to remember, I think what carves TNA's special place in wrestling history was it was the first company after WWE gained a full monopoly, after ECW went out of business and after WCW went out of business. It was the first wrestling company in the U.S. after that happened that actually had a shot of competing on a national stage. It eventually got onto a major cable channel. It had pretty good ratings at its peak. I mean, ratings that obviously in today's more um, decreased TV market people would kill for, at least in total audience. It had at some times a big budget. You know, millions and millions of dollars were sunk into TNA. It had top talent behind the scenes and in front of the camera. It, you know, it had a ton of resources. It was the one company before AEW that had an actual shot. And I think because of that, everyone wanted TNA to succeed because they, you know, they didn't want wrestling to be a monopoly because we've seen for the last, most of the last 20 years when wrestling on a national stage is a monopoly, it kind of gets boring for a variety of reasons and the product that has the monopoly kind of suffers. And so if you look at TNA, I think so many people, they needed TNA to succeed. It was almost like, you know, there's so many wrestling companies not to be um, mean to them, but if they're bad, people don't get passionate that they're bad because it's like, well, I didn't expect much from, for them to begin with and I already have my options. Like, not to uh, pick on these companies, but in today's wrestling landscape where we have so many options and there are seemingly two major companies in the U.S. right now and so many, it's so much easier to access small options, like, I don't see a lot of hatred when MLW or NWA run a bad show. And some people would say, probably some of those people on those old TNA message boards would say, see, that's proof. You know, people are going easy on those companies. And, you know, they were so much harder on TNA back in the day because they had a vendetta against TNA. And I think the truth is, this is no one expects anything from MLW or NWA. So they're not disappointed. And no one badly needs those companies to succeed. I'm sure we would all like them to succeed, but we don't badly need them to succeed the way so many of us really felt like we needed TNA to succeed in those early years when WWE controlled everything. And I think if you look at TNA's history, it's really sad that so often it's the fans, the journalists, and even the wrestlers and the people behind the scenes like, I felt like TNA never really got to establish a consistent identity over the long term because everybody was kind of like criticizing it or trying to steer it to what they wanted wrestling to be. It was usually something that wrestling already had been. So, you know, there was definitely a fan base of people. And I definitely saw this looking at the TNA forums of people that just wanted TNA to be WCW. There was a lot of fans on those forums that they were wrestling fans that would say, you know, that they were they never watched WWF. They hated it for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. And they were huge WCW fans. And TNA was literally the only thing keeping them as wrestling fans. They would often say, if TNA goes out of business, I'm done watching wrestling. So they want a lot of them wanted TNA to be WCW. And then there was the hardcore Vince Russo fans. So the various times Vince Russo got in power, there were some of those fans that would be like, you know, any ills with this company is because Vince Russo isn't being given up enough control. The reins are, we, you know, we need to get back to Crash TV because that's when wrestling was the most popular. That's, you know, what wrestling needs to be. And Vince Russo in TNA is our only shot. And then, you know, when Ring of Honor and the Super Indies kind of rose up, there were a lot of people 
that wanted TNA to be that. Obviously, you had elements of that in the X Division, but it got to the point where I know TNA, some people behind the scenes, resented how many times in like the wrestling newsletters and on message boards, fans would say things like, oh, these guys are good, but they're better in TNA. I mean, sometimes even some of the wrestlers, like AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels, for a brief period, would even say things like, oh, I have more fun in Ring of Honor. And I know that bothered people in TNA. And again, it's just another direction people wanted that company to go in. And then, of course, there was a lot of people trying to just relive um, wrestling history where they would sign every old star you know, that was available, eventually walked through TNA's doors, whether or not they were the right fit or you know, maybe financially worth it at that point in their careers. Because, again, it was... A lot of people thought, let's just relive the heyday. And looking back on it, I, I feel bad about that. I, I I feel like TNA was a kid that got raised by a whole lot of parents, and those parents never really let that kid find its own identity. That, that's the tragedy, because TNA had so much talent and had, at different times, the resources, like I said earlier. And there are some really good things, that I think, with TNA that have gone underappreciated because people just were disappointed with what it what they wanted it to be that it wasn't instead of looking at what it actually was even if it was far, at times far from perfect what i would say this is my way of telling those fans for all those years ago i wish i could go back in time machine and tell those fans although i never really interacted with them very much personally i, I left them alone but i guess what i would say is you kind of want people to be that angry about your company because if they're that angry, that means they're that passionate. And if people are that passionate, it means they care. People were that passionate about TNA in a way they weren't about other wrestling promotions because they wanted it to succeed, because they needed it to succeed. In fact, I remember sometimes on those TNA forums, sometimes even when there was a show so bad that even those fans, the most militant, relentlessly enforced positivity type fans, I remember sometimes some of them, believe it or not, would even say, like, you should watch this show anyway, because if you don't, WWE wins. Like, watch this show, buy this peer review that wasn't good, because, you know, we need this kind of succeed. Just the idea of it, we need it to succeed. Yeah, I feel, that's why I feel like this podcast, you guys are doing the Lord's work, because, like I mentioned earlier, I do a podcast about Ring of Honor. I think it's a good podcast. I think it's a lot of fun. I think you learn about a lot of the greatest wrestlers of the last 20 years, and we you learn a lot about the history of, like, modern independent wrestling as a whole not just ring of honor but i feel like when we covered that show because that sh that company was the pure loved, if not super popular was critically beloved like a lot of times we don't uncover a ton of hidden gems like guess what we say samoa joe versus kento kabashi was great that's not a shock people knew that you know people said the cm punk versus uh samoa joe hour-long matches were great guess what like that's not a shock but I feel like there are so many matches in TNA and little moments and little runs probably of a month here, a couple months there, that were really good. And because people were just so disappointed by either what was going on the top of the card or because it wasn't fitting their idea of what wrestling needed, that um, they just looked hand-waved it away and were um, really disappointed. Like it reminds me of uh, AJ Styles. I, I did an article a while ago for my Patreon, which I will plug at the end. I will save you all. But um, I did an article where I was kind of researching the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame that a lot of people, uh, like the luminaries of wrestling, can vote on and the Hall of Fame. And if you look at, like, the vote totals of certain guys like AJ Styles, there's a guy who fell off the ballot when he was in TNA, you know, worked most of his career in TNA, 
put in a ton of great work, spent most of his career there. And then he spends a couple years in New Japan and on the Indies and one year in WWE and he's in the Hall of Fame. And his numbers went from like I, in the Observer, you have to get over, uh, I forget if it's 50 or 60%. My memory is so bad. And I should know that because I am now a voter in it recently. But he went from like being under 10% to at least half or more of the vote. I think that tells you how easy it was for people to ignore great work in TNA because there was a shit ton of great AJ Styles matches in TNA, more probably in that promotion to this day than any other promotion, even though it's now been many, he's been many years removed from it. And so to me, when I think of TNA, it's the Rorschach test of professional wrestling. Everyone wanted it to be what they wanted wrestling from it. They were intensely passionate about it because it was the company that everyone needed to succeed. And it's the company that probably is going to have more like hidden gems and little moments that fall under the radar of any company of its size in like modern wrestling history. So guys, you guys are doing a great job covering it. Thank you for covering it. Thank you for letting me ramble for a few minutes. I was honored to be asked. And again, so if you want to hear me ramble about things that aren't TNA, again, we have the Through the Years podcast, my Twitter and I also have a Patreon, which covers nothing almost, well, it does have miscellaneous articles for me, but it covers mostly just my coverage of these crazy TNA message boards, which I stopped many years ago, well, a couple years ago, but basically it's everything I ever did on those things. It's $5 a month. You get the entire archives, plus a lot of miscellaneous wrestling articles and reviews. That would be patreon.com slash mecca mecca so that's m-e-c-c-a twice in a row no spaces and i will leave you with one anecdote that maybe tells you how special tna and those message words really were this is the weirdest um thing that ever happened in all my years following these message boards so there would be a lot of colorful characters we got to know following these message boards there was one i won't name them even i don't want to embarrass them but they were very into TNA. They lived with their mother, even though they were well into their, their late 30s, early 40s. And they uh, they were militantly into TNA. They didn't always seem to have a good relationship with their mother. They would vent on that in the forum. So one day he was um, live chatting on the forum during uh, Impact, as people would on that forum or other forums. And he just started to tell update people that his mother was lying on the couch unresponsive and he wasn't sure if she was alive or dead. And he began to um, give live updates on that and say like, okay, my brother's calling an ambulance. You know, medics are here. They think she's maybe fallen to like a diabetic coma. I'm going to stay at the home, but my brother's going with her in the ambulance. And interspersed with these you know, the darkest, most frightening comments you would want to read from anybody, he was continuing to recap that episode of Impact. So it would be, you would you would just look at the feed and it would be like, you would see a post from him going, you know, okay, I think she's breathing, but she's still not responsive. And then like four minutes later, she was like, he would be like, that's a great match from Frankie Kazarian. And I, uh, the temptation would be to say this was all fake. I saw years of this guy posting he never said anything weird like this before or after he um, 
didn't do have any wild stories or anything crazy. If anything, the, the things he would reveal about his personal life would be things that would seemed very honest because they were things you wouldn't generally want to disclose. They didn't reflect well on him. His mother turned out to be okay, by the way, at least at, at that moment. But in a way, when I think of TNA, of all the other things I mentioned, maybe that's the thing I think about because for anything you can say about TNA, bad or good, it is the only wrestling promotion I have ever seen that inspired devotion to the level that a fan would live recap the show. He wouldn't tear away from his mother's possible death slash coma. He still had to keep watching that impact. And quite frankly, I've never seen another promotion do something like that. So have a great anniversary, TNA. Hello, you've got to be kidding me, listeners. This is Alan Forel. Very grateful to be invited by Garrett to extend my thoughts about TNA for the 20th anniversary podcast that we have going on here that you've been listening to and I hope, uh, you know, I can contribute a little myself here in terms of what TNA means to me when I put my head down on the pillow at night and I close my eyes and I run through my thoughts and I get to the TNA section of my daily thoughts. What is it that I think about and, you know, I'm someone who uh, has always been uh, known as a fairly positive uh, wrestling fan. I, I sometimes get frustrated with that uh, with that branding uh, that people think, I oh, he likes everything. Blah, 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 blah. Trust me, there is plenty of wrestling I don't like. There has been plenty of TNA slight impact wrestling that I haven't liked and that I have taken great issue with over the years you know generally i just try to approach it the content i put out there is more focused on the things i do like and with that in mind i want to hone in on an era of tna's history which is when it spoke most to me as a fan and my sensibilities and that was the run up to tna getting on spike tv in the autumn of 2005. Uh, I'm sure Garrett can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was September, October kind of time, 2005. And in the lead up to that, TNA had a kind of, they, they were being booked primarily, I believe, by Scott Demore, and they didn't have a solid TV deal. They were putting stuff out on, on the internet and whatnot, and it was, it was a kind of in-between period for TNA. And during this holding period, I don't know if it was just this, they didn't feel they needed to meddle too much with the bread and butter or, or what the thought process was, but they just went out there and let their guys do some great pro wrestling. And it kind of speaks to the idea that if you just let great pro wrestlers go out and do great pro wrestling, and you don't have to mess with it too much. And I think that was proven in the year that followed when Vince Russo came in and, and things kind of took a turn there uh, for the next couple of years as we saw the embodiment of, you know, meddling with, good wrestling that just generally worked and I think um, during that period really the only thing where the extra spices and extra flavor kind of added to the product was uh, a lot of the 
paparazzi production stuff. Everyone still thinks really fondly of that. But going back to 2005, things were just left alone. And we had monthly pay-per-views that if every pay-per-view wasn't a home run, great show, every pay-per-view had at least one or two awesome matches on it. And there were a couple that were home run great shows where pretty much top to bottom the card delivered. They were really cooking with gas. They had some of their best X-Division guys at that point coming into their primes. I don't want to say in their primes, but coming into their primes. So at that point where they've been around enough that I'm speaking to guys like Sanjay Dutt, Chris Sabin, Alex Shelley, AJ obviously, Petey Williams, guys who've been around now a couple of years and you know they've got that experience but they're also still super enthusiastic uh, in their athletic prime and they're capable of doing amazing stuff and they didn't really they didn't really try to rein themselves in that much they were still pushing the boundaries x division all about no limits of course so that's what those guys represented they were they were pushing those boundaries and then Samoa Joe comes in and adds a whole different flavor to that division and it was just really great stuff and you had uh, some great tag stuff around that time as well AMW were still doing really well just all over the card there was things to really enjoy and if you were into the stuff that guys like Rhino and Raven and Jeff Jarrett were doing at the top of the card, then even better. And Abyss was really, I think that was one of Abyss's best years, particularly when you consider the work he did in Ring of Honor as well that year to, to complement his TNA, his time in TNA. A, a lot of guys on that roster excelling. And I just, I just really loved that product around that time. It was really handy for me as a fan here in Ireland because that was when TNA was... A big part of the wrestling channel here in Ireland and of course the UK as well and we would see all those pay-per-views the, the Sunday pay-per-views I think they were live and not live but I think we got them like within a day or two of them happening or something like that I, I can't remember the exact way it unfolded but we didn't have to wait particularly long to see those big shows and got all the stuff that was happening in between. It was just a, a good, easy time to follow that product. And then the first couple of months of when they went on to Spike TV, you know, they had a, there was an injection of excitement into the place. And I think it really worked well around that period too. Christian coming into TNA around that time was a huge boost because that guy coming off his heel turn into V and the, storyline with Chris Jericho and Trish Stratus and the new look with him and Tomko like he was red hot when he came into TNA like it's it, it cannot be understated how excited people were for Christian when he came in and uh, yeah he added a ton to that product he hit the ground running there and yeah it was just a really fun product to watch uh, some of my favorite matches from that era I, I love the Chris Sabin Samoa Joe match. I think it's one of the most unheralded, underrated matches of like the last twenty years, uh, not just in TNA but in all of wrestling worldwide. I thought they just had a sublime pro wrestling match. The AJ uh, versus Joe matches, both singles matches they had, 
obviously the triple threat with Daniels as well, which I'm sure has been spoken of over the, during the course of this podcast, so I won't belabor that point. And uh, as well, I really enjoyed um, AJ and Daniels' singles matches earlier in the year. The 30-minute Iron Man match they had was was really great. You know, there are some other like sneaky fun things in there as well. In 2005, you had Chris Candido knocking about the place and, and doing some fun stuff. He had a really fun TV match with, with AJ Styles. Uh, Jerry Lynn and Sean Waltman coming in. You had Alex Shelley versus Shocker on a pay-per-view. That was uh, really good fun, uh, if I remember right. Yeah, just a, a whole load of excellent stuff in 2005 TNA. And you've got Don West and, and Mike Tanay on the call. I mean, that's that's your dream team right there as far as TNA commentary goes. It, I, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention this was around the time that the, the Impact Zone really started to take form as a crowd, as a venue for wrestling. I think that it, 2005 was the year that it kind of caught on as one of the cool wrestling environments. The Just uh, that crowd, before they kind of got burnt out, before... It was overdone. They were really into everything and they created a great atmosphere for that product. And when you've got the great atmosphere, the good, very good production and the very good commentary, it just creates a real nice warm wrapping around this excellent wrestling product that you're putting forward in the ring. And just the, the whole presentation was just real good. So yeah. I'm waffling now, so I will leave it there. Thanks again to Garrett for having me on. If you want to check out more of my waffle, check out Alan Forel's Pro Wrestling Paradise at Piru Torch VIP. And you can find me, well, I usually say you can find me on Twitter at Alan Forel, but I haven't been there very much recently. So I stick to checking out Piru Torch VIP, see what we got going up there. And uh, until next time, bye everybody. Hello there, friends. You're back around to me, Garrett Kidney, your regular You've Got to Be Kidding Me co-host. So I've told this story before, but it probably bears repeating given the occasion. In 2006, I was falling out of love with professional wrestling. I had reached that age in your mid-teens, like most wrestling fans do, where we all go in one of two directions. We all either accept that professional wrestling was a mere folly of our childhood, and we will move into adulthood to read Ulysses and other such serious endeavors. Or we will go in the other direction and embrace pro wrestling for life, usually. 2006 was my crossroads. 2006 was my moment where I could have went in either direction. I was disenchanted with WWE at the time. I wasn't particularly aware of the broader scene outside of WWE at the time. I knew it existed, but I'd never watched any of it. So there I sat at the professional wrestling crossroads, at the wee age of 14, thinking, this could be it. I could just go do serious things for the rest of my life and leave behind the whimsical world of professional wrestling. But then, my brother returned from holidays and gave me the gift of the Best of the X Division Volume 2. Now, that was not my first exposure to TNA. I would have watched Bits and Bobs on the wrestling channel over here. But it was mostly like the utter rubbish of the Asylum days where you would tune in and see the Hard 10, which is amazing in one way, but probably not the first thing you want to be introduced to from TNA. You maybe want a bit of AJ or maybe a bit of AMW or maybe a bit of X Division first before they're like, hey, let's unleash the nonsense chaos that is TNA wrestling on you. 
So my brother brought me back that Best of the X Division Volume 2 DVD. And I popped it in and I saw wrestlers like Chris Sabin and wrestlers like Alex Shelley and wrestlers like Sanjay Dutt and wrestlers like P.D. Williams. And of course, wrestlers like AJ Styles, wrestlers like Christopher Daniels, wrestlers like Samoa Joe. A whole generation of wrestlers that I did not know existed other than to see in names in promotion wars. For all that time I saw how highly rated Chris Sabin was, I'd never actually seen him wrestle. So by the time I did get that DVD I was like, oh this is why he's very highly rated in promotion wars. Now I get it. But I fell in love with that generation of the X Division, with those particular wrestlers. Those were my gateway into the world beyond, if you will. And from that moment, I watched the primetime special that featured the debut of Kurt Angle, the in-ring debut of Kurt Angle, where he wrestled Abyss, and also that had the Christian versus Rhino Six Sides of Steel barbed wire cage match. And from there, I was like, I guess this is my lot in life. I'm a TNA wrestling guy. I watched every show the company has ever produced that is available on tape. There's some explosions and whatnot that aren't available on tape that I would like to watch. I watched them more than once in many cases. I began buying TNA merchandise. I could not help but be sucked into the TNA merchandise world that Don West led me into, where there would be the Don West Daily Deals on TNA Today, where he'd give you like 15 DVDs for the price of four and throw in like a signed photo of Sting or a signed photo of Christian Cage. I still, to this day, have signed photos of Christian Cage and Kurt Angle on my wall that I got in a Don West Daily Deal in 2007. I began writing about TNA in 2009. The first time I was ever actually paid to write something was in 2016 for Fighting Spirit magazine. And I had the pleasure to write multiple articles for them. And for the last four and a half years, it has been my literal full-time living from Impact Wrestling. So when I think about all that, and I try to summarize, well, 20 years of TNA, 20 years of this company, there is so much that can go through your mind, so many different ups and downs, so many different feelings about what TNA was, what TNA could have been, probably what TNA should have been, and just as importantly, what TNA wasn't or didn't end up being. And trying to sort through all those feelings with a combination of nostalgia, with a combination of regret, a little bit, and then just a sprinkling of longing for what could have been, is quite difficult. Because when I think of TNA, when I really like feel nostalgic for TNA, it is those early days on Spike TV. Like I watched the Barry Scott narrated opening package to that October 1st, 2005 episode of Impact, the first episode on Spike TV, and you feel something. You feel that this company was actually on the precipice of greatness. It wasn't just a line that Barry Scott probably said in that video package, it felt real. You felt like they were the future of professional wrestling. You felt like they were the new face of professional wrestling. And any time I think about TNA history, that's where my mind inevitably wanders. It's the version of TNA that existed in that moment that felt, for the first time in the history of the company, and maybe for very few times after that, actually felt like the best form the company could possibly take. And I miss it, I want it, and I get a little mad that it didn't sustain. Because every single time, the company would take steps toward being its best self, 
somebody would come swinging in like a wrecking ball, insisting it should be like something that used to be. Whether it was Vince Russo and his car crash TV and his refusal to let the style of the late 90s die, whether it was Eric Bischoff and their complete upending of everything that was TNA at the time, whether it was Bruce Prichard or anybody else that had a position of power, John Gaborik, all coming from either WCW or WWE and trying to turn TNA into some version of WCW or WWE from the past, all of those people, I'm still a little angry at them. And I shouldn't be. It's been too long to be a little angry at them, but I still feel that little bit of anger toward these people who just refused to let the past go. These people who refused to move on and look at the future and look at what fans wanted now instead of what fans used to want. To look at what TNA was at its best instead of the weird deformed version of TNA they wanted it to be to appeal to an audience that didn't exist anymore. And I can't let that go. I really can't. It sits there in my heart, stewing just a little bit that those people were so short-sighted and so ignorant and so deluded in their own vision of what wrestling used to be that they couldn't just let TNA be TNA. They couldn't let it be the place where AJ Styles was the best goddamn wrestler in the world. They couldn't let it be the place where Samoa Joe was the most authentic, believable professional wrestler you will ever see in your life. No matter how many work shoots you'll do, they will never live up to the believability of Samoa Joe as a character. They couldn't just let it be the place where the Motor City Machine Guns are the tag team of the next generation, both in terms of personality and most importantly in terms of style. The team that would lead the genre into the future and would influence generations of wrestlers to come after them. They couldn't just let LAX be the Hispanic act that you are desperately trying to appeal to with pandering and they're just sitting there organically waiting for you to let them be that. Except no, we have to try and work out what that audience wants instead of just presenting kick-ass wrestlers that they'll like. You couldn't just let The Amazing Red be the next generation of Rey Mysterio, one of the best high flyers in the history of US wrestling. You had to make him sangriento and put a mask on him. And every time I think about how when Eric Bischoff comes in with Hulk Hogan, they're like, what if AJ Styles was a mini-me Ric Flair and Abyss is a mini-me Hulk Hogan? They couldn't just let Abyss be one of the best big men in professional wrestling and let him kick ass and be TNA's guy. You had to make him Hulk Hogan. And I know I should let that anger go. I know I should. It's immature to keep holding on to that anger. But every time my mind wanders back, every time I think about that best version of TNA, that best version of AJ, that best version of Joe, that best version of Abyss, it's still there. But this is TNA's 20th anniversary. 20 years. Maybe today's not the day where we mourn what TNA wasn't, but rather celebrate what it was. Because while some of those moments were fleeting, while some of those moments didn't last nearly as long as they should have, when we got them, they were glorious. When AJ Styles was just allowed BAJ Styles and had one of the best runs of pay-per-view matches you will ever see in your life in 2005, he delivered a body of work that cemented his place as legitimately one of the best wrestlers of all time. When TNA allowed the X Division to be a division about the best high-flying wrestlers in the world competing, not with triple threat rules, not with referee camera hats, not with weird six-man tag team stables, remember that, end of 2016? That didn't last long. 
but just let great wrestlers go out there and have great wrestling matches, and that was enough. It was glorious. When you would have AJ Styles and Loki and Jerry Lynn building the foundation of the division, when you would have AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, and Samoa Joe taking that foundation to another level, when you would have Chris Sabin and Alex Shelley and P.D. Williams and Sanjay Dutt and DJZ and Trevor Lee and all these wrestlers who would try to take that division to a new level and Josh Alexander all the way in 2021 having one of the best exhibition title runs of all time, when you would just let those wrestlers do their damn thing, to quote B.G. James, when you would allow wrestlers to be honestly funny and show their actual personality, not in overwrought stories or badly written jokes, but just with the Team 3D funeral allowing James Storm to show his personality, or the Paparazzi Championship Series allowing the X Division and Kevin Nash to tell a bunch of silly dumb jokes, or the Aces and Eights funeral just burying your own angles, or all the way up to Swingers Palace with a bunch of goofy, funny, heartwarming at times comedy, when you would allow wrestlers to be silly and funny and engaging in a way that other companies wouldn't. Other companies were just doing pies and faces, and you had actual jokes and wrestlers with charm and personality and humor, and a rare wrestling show that was actually funny at times. When you would allow the Knockouts division to actually be pro wrestlers which was such a stark contrast to what other people were doing in professional wrestling at the time, and when you look at what Gail Kim and Awesome Kong did, you realise these women should be here in main events, and god damn it they deserve it, god damn it they've earned it, and god damn it it's long overdue. And it changed wrestling. So rather than focus on the bad, which I've done a decent amount of already to be fair, let's talk about what TNA was at its best, what TNA still is, what Impact Wrestling still is at its best right now, and that is the land of invention and reinvention. The place for AJ Styles to have a platform that he would not have gotten anywhere else to do what he can do best in the ring. The place where you get things like Ultimate X. The place where you get things like the Knockouts Division. The place where you get to get wrestlers like Samoa Joe and Christopher Daniels and the Motor City Machine Guns. And LAX. And America's Most Wanted. And great tag team wrestling. And great cruiserweight wrestling. And great women's wrestling. Things that were not always prominent in mainstream US wrestling during the 20 years of TNA that TNA gave a platform to. That TNA gave an opportunity to, to thrive. When you look at innovations in broadcasting with dual entranceways and great announcing. And even little things like sweeping overhead camera shots and green lasers and cutting little holes in the steel cage so you can actually see the cage match better. And embracing digital platforms long before anybody else did. That's the invention of TNA. Was it always good invention? Hell no. You got the electric steel cage. You got the fish market street fight, which is actually good. Go back and watch the fish market street fight. That is actually legitimately good. But you would get the last rights and the reverse battle royal. You would get the invention that's not necessarily the invention people would want. But you also get Ultimate X. And then you get reinvention. You get people like Matt Hardy being able to go to TNA and reinvent themselves in a meaningful way, being able to do things that they would not be able to do elsewhere, introduce characters and match types and story structures that they would not be able to do elsewhere. That's what TNA were willing to give, a platform to sting, to become Joker Sting and try something weird and new and that people like latched onto and thought was pretty cool for a character that was 30 years old. A place where somebody like Steve Macklin can go from being a wrestler that nobody on earth cares about, nobody on earth even knows is good because he's simply not given the opportunity and impacts the place where he can get that opportunity. Invention and reinvention. At its very best, at its core, take away what it could have been, take away what it should have been, what it was at its best, 
was a place where you could see the kind of wrestling that other companies were simply not interested in offering, and seeing older wrestlers given a chance to redeem themselves, reinvent themselves, or be their best selves. I don't think I'll ever quite be able to leave the anger go. It'll still sit there, stewing, until I explode someday. But at the very least, we can focus on all the things TNA did well, all the things people have fond memories of TNA for, and all the things that are worth celebrating here on 20 Years of TNA Wrestling. Alright, that's our TNA 20th anniversary episode. I would once again like to say a just humongous thank you to each and every person who contributed to this episode, who gave their time to send us in their thoughts on 20 Years of TNA. I'm so eternally grateful to all of those people and equally grateful to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it took you on a trip down TNA memory lane. I hope you had a, a very good fun time and I hope you're celebrating 20 years of TNA in your own way. So we are, you've got to be kidding me. We are a TNA history podcast where we cover TNA history one month at a time. You can listen to all of our previous episodes now in our back catalog from June 2002 all the way to April 2004, which is where we are at the moment. In two weeks, we'll be back with our May 2004 episode of You've Got to Be Kidding Me. We'll be covering stuff like the first World X Cup coming up in May. So you can look forward to that. If you would like to support the show a little more, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash kiddingme or tnhad.com. If you don't get the tnhad.com reference, you can just listen to old episodes and you will eventually. There you can get second shows where we covered the entire 2010 Monday Night War. We've covered all of Rinka King. We also have a Raintaker series where we cover New Japan from 10 years in the past, from the Rainmaker shock onwards. We also have watch-alongs. We also have star ratings. You can also get ad-free episodes of the show, as well as our show notes for each and every episode. So you can go to patreon.com slash kiddingme or tnhad.com if you would like to support the show just a little bit more. You can follow us on Twitter at TNAHistoryPod. You can follow me on Twitter at Garrett Kidney. You can follow Liam on Twitter at TheGleetMuda. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. TNA Wrestling. Cross the line. <laughs>